Welcome to About Podcast, our conversation about conversations happening in our earbuds. My name is Alexandra. And my name is Annie. And we're using our obsession with the podcast media format as a jumping off point for discussions on identity, culture, politics, religion, and general hardcore niche nerddom. Today, we're discussing the episode, The Hate Debate, from the podcast More Perfect, which dives into the rarefied world of the Supreme Court to explain how cases deliberated inside hallowed halls affect lives far away from the bench. Today, we have a special guest joining us, my colleague and friend, Jonathan Taylor. When he's not playing Frisbee in the park or collecting barbecue sauces, Jono is a PhD student in history at the University of Oxford, studying the history of child protection in 20th century Britain. First off, Jono, if you had a podcast, what would it be and why? Oh, hi there. Thanks so much for having me. Um, first up, what would I have as a podcast? I think I'd love to invite really disparate thinkers all around the world into a room and get them to chat about really obscure things. Um, I love, yeah, the idea of sharing ideas across cultures. Sounds really exciting. I love that. I'd listen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've got good. one signed up. <laughs> might be on it, you never know. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to start off by asking you to, how would you summarize this episode? Because it's a little bit of a departure from the usual format of More Perfect, which tends to dive into a specific Supreme Court case and see how it ripples outward um, into, the lo- into just like everyday life. Um, so yeah, how would you two summarize this for people who haven't listened? Yeah, I mean, I, I was really interested in the fact that we are going to do this episode of More Perfect rather than one of their kind of usual really highly curated um, it's almost like they're like long form research projects through audio, you know, a lot of their other ones. So how I would, okay. So that's just my, that's just my repeating what you already said. Uh, how would I summarize this? I just say that they host two debates um, regarding two different kind of avenues of the free, free speech issues in the U.S. today. Yeah. How about you, John? Um, I completely agree. I, I think they start off with a discussion about government and free speech, and they have that as one self-contained debate, and then they segue into a second related but different debate about free speech and social media platforms such as Twitter and Facebook, and they, they see those as subtly different, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I also think it's really notable that you have three different debaters. You have one is the same debater for both debates, and then you have two different ones for the others, which um, is actually a critique I have of it. Mm. Uh, personally, I kind of, I, I, I almost felt like it wasn't fair to mm. um, the repeat debater. Let me make sure I've got his name. El, uh, Ellie Mistel. Ellie Mistel, yeah. That's right, and then the two other debaters are sort of brought in as, um, experts in their respective fields. Um, So Ken White is a First Amendment litigator, um, and then the second debater who's brought in, I forget her name, I'm really sorry. Um, She uh, takes a very different position, but she is also um, involved in the issue of um, free speech online. Corinne McSherry. That's it, I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah, and just to say that uh, Ellie Mustel is the executive editor at Above the Law, and he's contributed contributing legal editor for more perfect so you often hear him on the episodes mm-hmm. um and then jada Bramad is the moderator of the debaters and he's not he's he's wait he is a host of more perfect all of a sudden i'm 
He is, yes. Okay. 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 Does Robert Krolwich, who's also on, so More Perfect is a, it's a, what would you call that? It's like a spinoff. Yeah, yeah, there we go. It's like a spinoff of the show Radiolab, and that was hosted by these two guys, Jada Bumrod and Robert Krolwich. Is Robert Krolwich, does he appear on More Perfect? N- not that I can remember. I don't think he appears at all. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. Another really different thing about this episode is that there's a live audience. Yes. And I think that's really, yeah. really interesting. I think um, particularly because when they are judging who has won and lost a debate, um, they use the not so scientific method. Of- <laughs> yeah. um, and that's used as a barometer of sort of public opinion. And I think it's interesting to think about who was invited along to participate and, and who is sat in the audience. Um, yeah. that, that I agree. Questions being asked and the reception of what's being said mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I definitely want to get into like who was in the audience, um, the demographics and stuff, which we don't know, unfortunately, but just based on <laughs> the sway of the audience. And also it was really, difficult for me to even um, differentiate the applause levels of, (laughs) it didn't feel to me that there were, there was like a very clear quote unquote winner with the applause levels at the end of each debate. I I felt like Jada Bumrad would make some kind of judgment about like, oh, this person's won or this is the applause level or whatever. And I, I never could recognize whatever he was seeing with that, you know, um, I did, there was only one thing where before it was discussed, I remember thinking, oh, a lot of people are, I remember thinking there was a sway already, but Mm. I don't, I'm afraid I don't remember which was, was that the first one? Okay. I think there was a more noticeable smattering and then sort of heavy applause. Yeah. Yeah. But I also think it's a weird thing to applause for, you know, it was such sensitive (laughs) and difficult topics. It also just, there was this kind of disconnect to me of like having like, was it like star search or something? You know what I mean? One of those kind of old talent show methods of like using the clapometer of like who wins. <laughs> this is like, like really huge issues. So, which I suppose is something that these radio shows or these podcasts kind of do, right? They bring all kinds of levels of thinking about something. But um, for me, for some reason in this particular instance, I really felt that. Yeah. And I think what's striking later on is they talk about the importance of anonymity in discussions about free speech. and. Clapping is very clearly not an anonymous action. You can see what your friends are doing. And so I wonder how differently people would have voted if it had been perhaps done online through a web link or something. And then they could have more conveniently had a before and after poll of, you know, people who voted one way at the beginning predominantly stuck with that or changed. I mean, maybe maybe it was a more sort of free-flowing, spur-of-the-moment decision to host the debate. But I think that might be a more interesting way of unpacking whether people's opinions had been changed or someone had won or lost the debate. Yeah, I think that's a great idea and a great point because for something as uh, produced and heavily researched as Radiolab and More Perfect, you'd think that they would have had a little bit more of an accurate measurement. Yeah. And I, I even remember uh, Jada Murad, I think at the second debate was like, and now clap if you disagree with the asshole on your left or something like that, you know? And I was like, Oh, is that how we're doing it? <laughs> <laughs> you could sit on the fence or not agree yeah. with either. I mean, it's yeah. not really a binary option. Yeah. I, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, I have an idea what they could use is, I don't know if you ever had huge university classes, but we had have these, I, I went to the University of Texas, which is massive. And so I uh, had these like clickers that we would have that we had to like, and we would 
basically we could like vote on things like during the during the seminar itself or lecture but really usually it was actually because like for pop quizzes and things mm. like but uh but that would work very well if we had the clickers <laughs> they had the clickers but oh that's yeah. also what they used on america's funniest home videos oh uh, yeah he bob saget would say get out the I think it was clicker. I forget. But anyway, <laughs> really more important perfect. stuff. But yeah, yeah exactly. even more. Everyone, close your eyes and then raise your hand if you agree. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Heads up, seven up method. Heads up, seven up. I love it. Um, cool. So let's let's get into each question a little bit further. How do you okay. guys feel about that? Yeah, we're ready. So the first one is: Should the government limit online free speech? Um, and Elia Meistel um, was kind of arguing for um, kind of a, a new standard of the First Amendment. Um, and, and Ken White was saying that the government essentially should not be involved at all, is what I understood. Yeah. Or did you guys have a different interpretation of their over, less, less about the specifics, but their overall stances? Yes, I think um, Ken White's position, perhaps rather predictably, is that this is a slippery slope and we don't know what we're opening and it's better to have a position as it stands than the risk that you know, free speech is later sort of inhibited by well-meaning people today. Um, yeah. yeah. So, there's a sort of be kind to our future selves element, I think, to some of the debates that were taking place. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that came up in both. That came up in all of them, really, was, was how will this affect the future? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. That's the basic, um, that was, that, in broad strokes, those are the basic sides. I made a face just because when you were explaining it, it helped me realize that I never did pin down exactly what each was advocating, but I certainly agree that yeah, it, it went along those basic lines. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so where did you guys stand before the debate with this question? It might be worth recapping. So the debate they were having is, should the government limit online free speech in particular, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. rather than picketing or protesting or um, the press more generally? Yeah, yeah that right. was online. That's a good point. Uh, so, John, go ahead. I mean, Ooh. if you don't mind, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, no, being put on the spot. Uh, mm -hmm. So, I think my position as a Brit, as the token Brit on the show, is <laughs> I think the government um, will have grounds to limit online free speech. Um, and I was interested that they they brought up the the fact that the first the first amendment already has exceptions that have been um, ruled upon at the Supreme Court level. Um, and so, this is as one of the participants talks about, this isn't about whether or not we have free speech, but rather where we draw the lines with respect to that free speech. Whose side did you find yourself swaying towards more during the actual debate? I think during the debate itself, I probably found myself siding with Ellie more than the um, other speaker, Ken. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's probably where I began with, began from, pardon me. So I don't think mm -hmm. I was radically changed by 15 minutes of discussion. I think that's probably my starting point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So, uh, I, I guess I sway. I don't know. I swayed more towards. I don't. I, where I stood. Where I'm really undecided about all this. Honestly, this is an issue that I'm really grappling with. Um. And so it's hard to say. I I've listened to it twice. 
And I'm pretty sure the first time I listened to it, I sided with Ellie. And I think this time I would kind of sway over to Ken's argument and then kind of kind of like flirt with that. And then I'd be like, oh, no, no, no. The ramifications are too strong. I can't handle that. And then I'd kind of go back over that, you know. And it just felt so, um, yeah, because, it, yeah, I'll just, unfortunately, I'm afraid that I've partly been nervous about recording this episode for us because I am so not well decided about this. So I don't I know how strongly I can, you know, advocate for like one or the other, but yeah. But I think that's such a, I think that's a important thing to talk about too, you know, mm -hmm. because it's not, if this was a simple issue, we wouldn't have to discuss it, you know, yeah. that I think unpacking the complexities of this is what I find really fascinating about it. Mm -hmm. All right. So how about you, Alexandra? Um, well, I, um, going into it was someone who definitely, um, believes that free speech is, um, something that should be regulated if it is like, it turns into hate speech or, you know, I don't think that racism and homophobia and any kind of bigotry should have a, a platform. Um, so, but I also appreciate this, the kind of nuances of this question that it's like, we're talking about the government and we're talking about online free speech. So, um, yeah, I think going into it, um, I was very much with, uh, Elia and, um, but I did find myself like really listening to Ken White and considering the different points he was making, especially where he talks about like, if you gave this power to the government, who's to say that they're going to use it in the way that you want it to be used? Um, because the government just since its inception has um, like never really given power to the most marginalized populations who are being affected the most by hate speech on the internet. So that was, that was one of the big complexities for me with this. Can I pick up one, on one of the points you make, which is about platforms? And yes. wonder, what, what do you understand by the term platform? Um, and what's the significance of having a platform? Um, in the online context, do you mean? Yeah. yeah. So you talked about how particular um, positions that people would understand to be bigoted don't merit a platform. And I wondered what that meant. Yeah, I guess um, with different social media accounts and also like different online forums, um, it, uh, this is like, it's so tricky because I, the thought of like regulating this mm -hmm. is so difficult to conceptualize because the internet is just like this vast, <laughs> like black hole. Um, but with, it's, I mean, it's a little easier to talk about like specific um, platforms like Twitter, for example. Let's say, and I think this goes into the second debate question a little more, but like, let's say Twitter was able to do this quote unquote, like perfectly, or at least well, like regulating um, hate speech, they would shut down accounts that were like calling for, um, Oh, you know what? Actually, I will go into one of uh, 
Ellie's Mar Ellie Martel uh, Mystel's um, points. He talks about um, what's what's that? We keep saying it either Elia or Ellie. <laughs> I think it's Ellie for short, and his full name oh, is Elliot. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we're good either way. Okay, great. Okay, great. Um, so he, t he talks about um, different kinds of stakes that statements have. So like, he, his quote is like, saying the president is a Kenyan isn't really like dangerous. Although, I mean, I, I think one could argue that it is, but um, versus like, Hillary Clinton is running a pedophile ring. Like these are, there's a difference bet like between the stakes there. Um, so I know this is kind of a roundabout way of answering your question, Jonathan, but um, I think, man, it's just so complicated once you even start to like go into how this rule will work logistically, but, um, hmm. but I mean, speech that is like very blatant at least we could start with like the most um like the you know the far end of the spectrum of like speech that is like very openly racist uh or transphobic or homophobic like get having that get shut down like those accounts get shut down um but yeah yeah, yeah i see i feel really really torn on this two big things i really well one one big thing i I want to say is that what's really tricky to me is that okay so part of this is like what actually counts as hate speech right mm -hmm. as, and that's the kind of example you were talking about dangerous and oh false and dangerous right okay mm -hmm. yeah well, the thing is like i mean it's hard because we have as our president in the u.s someone who retweets and ascribes to um platforms and publications that are False and dangerous. False and dangerous. And those include the British publication, right? And so that got retweeted, um, and, which is like Britain, Britain First. Britain First, Britain yeah. First yeah. Wait, and, can you yeah. explain that for people who might not? Yeah, sure. So um, Britain First is a, a very small political party in the UK. It's worth emphasizing that. Um, on the far right of the spectrum, um, who've been involved in some very public campaigns um, against Muslim communities in Britain. And this is closely bound up with a series of very high profile um, child sexual abuse cases in which the men perpetrating the acts have uh, derived from the Muslim community. And um, senior members of Britain First have accused members of the Muslim community in certain parts of the country as not doing enough to stamp out um, behavior that they, I think, justifiably describe as abhorrent. And mm -hmm. there's a case, and, and there's a sense that. Muslims in Britain are not assimilating in ways that members of Britain First would like them to. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a long sort of history of groups like the British National Party and before them, National Front. Um, and they are, you know, highly racialized in their thinking. Um, and, and more recently, the concerns have been around Islam and what Islam brings to Britain and Sharia law. Um, and so often, Yes, often it's it's closely bound up with that issue. Okay. Would would people more who didn't ascribe to these kinds of ideas would they use terms like fascist or neo-fascist or? Yeah. So very often when events are organised by Britain First, people protesting against them will hold up banners that um, talk about you know no fascists here. Um, the 
anti-fascist league will often have a presence at such protests. So okay. they're absolutely um, cast by opponents um, in terms of being fascistic. Okay. I was, yeah, I'm curious. Uh, yeah, and then in the US, I mean, or, uh, on the show, The Daily Stormer was referenced, Breitbart News, um, kind of, uh, just, there's so, there's so many. Um, oh, who was that guy who does the, doesn't matter, uh, John Oliver. <laughs> I'll never remember the name and it's not worth me like saying here humming about it but uh the guy who he John Oliver did a really good you know long piece on him and he does like a YouTube channel and a radio show but basically like you know one of these um, really angry guys who says false just lies Alex Jones Alex Jones thank you like you know and, and and dangerous dangerous lies I mean the thing is like um yeah anyways uh I just see on the Wikipedia page that Jono brought up that he's from Texas, which is a real bummer for me. Um. <laughs> well, okay, so here are the two important points for me with, with government limiting online free speech. Mm -hmm. um, actually, not just government, but, but into more of the second debate question as well. Um, let's just say limiting online free speech. Okay. The first is that, and I think Jad Abramrod brought up this point, um, in the second debate that a lot of the like neo-nazis that we're seeing right now like the proud boys or like whatever any of those groups um they are doing a lot of their recruitment online um and the other thing is that um i think we talked about this on our episode about code switch uh or or about race um but essentially um we're it feels kind of like the taboo um the socially enforced taboo of like racist speech um doesn't have the same impact when you're online um because even if you type in all caps a lot of exclamation points saying you're racist it's not going to have the same impact as like being socially ostracized um in a in a physical community so um i think those are kind of the two like danger i'm not just two but two of the danger points that i see with kind of unlimited free speech online and i and i think the other thing is that like um that ellie brings up is that there's no um that that people don't just want free speech they want consequence free speech um and just a very minor example of this is like when comedians get all up in arms when someone says that one of their jokes was like bigoted or racist or homophobic or something they're like you know they want to say these things without any consequences um so yeah i i think that's a really great point the difference between free speech and consequence free speech. I think that's a really great point. I want to say, I, I don't have, like, I didn't look up like a study today, but I was thinking about this when I was re-listening about the thing of, about recruiting online. The thing is, we already have tons and tons of um, people whose job in the U.S. is just to thwart, to get into chat rooms for recruiting for Al-Qaeda. Like, that is the whole job of people is to get into these chat rooms because that's also, again, where recruiting is happening is online mm -hmm. and I think this might be an example and I'm not saying I'm agreeing with uh, Ken White or not but like I think this is an example the government isn't doing the same thing mm -hmm. for, you know and for white supremacists right. and for dangerous 
you know, I mean, and in fact, I mean, yeah, whatever. And in fact, you know, they're getting bigger, they're getting bigger platforms. Um, but I think this also goes back, this points to the fact that like, we don't, at least I don't see evidence, I haven't heard of evidence where this is being tackled in the same way, even though we do have the evidence that most terrorism is um, in the U- in the U.S. is performed by white men. Mm. Um, so, and of course, we think it's called terrorists or not. Mass killings. Let me say that mass killings with a political motive. Do with that what you will. So, mm-hmm. um, I think. So maybe I guess I am kind of going towards the Ken White thing of like, um, maybe this is partially an issue of like not changing law, but 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 changing what, how laws enacted. But then again, it's like, how do you change how laws enacted unless you change law? Well, yeah. And also like, it's, it's basically asking a white supremacist organization of the, you know, the government to fix white supremacy online. And I, I don't think that those two can be compatible. Um, So I think that, um, I think that's wh- where I agree with Ken White is that, like, let's say the let's say the current administration was given this power, like, I don't see that working out in our favor. <laughs> I was also thinking about how um, those with different kinds of visas are having to have their social media checked on the way into the U.S. Mm, what? Yes, there have been cases of people from the UK who have been barred from entering the States because of comments. Wow. Yeah, so I mean, it's already happening, but it's happening in the wrong direction. And, or maybe maybe that's too simplistic to say the wrong direction. And I I do want to say, like, I think what we're dealing with also is just, I think think there's several aspects of this. There's the fact that, like, yes, the US was built literally, literally, I mean, out of a, you know, the pillar of, you know, misogyny and white supremacy. Also, and that has, that leaks into the way it has operated throughout its history, right? You know, systematically. Um, I think we're, and we're also dealing with the fact that there is a resurgence of just kind of open that stuff uh, in this, in this administration. Um, And also on like a less kind of accusatory level, almost any institution of power's goal is going to be to maintain power. Yeah. You know, so like, there's also a level to which, like, I, I don't think, I do think there are many government officials who don't want hate speech, who, you know, who do want, who, of who course, for equality and these kinds of things. And, but they're working within a system that is like designed to maintain power. You right. Know? So I just think that's, um, yeah, I'm not helping us get to any points. All I do is keep <laughs> mucking up the water. Making- <laughs> no, I, but I think that that, I think that's really important. And like, you know, the, the first point that Ellie makes is that the first amendment, the first amendment was written for white people. Uh, and that absolutely, well, yeah, for white men, exactly. Um, and has kind of like shifted to maintain power and include by including other groups. Um, and he's talking about absolutism as being absolutely wrong. Um, but yeah, I do think it's tricky, uh, you know, because uh, I am an anarchist, so I just like don't <laughs> believe in the government um, being able to regulate any kind of um, or be the, the the solution for human rights or um, yeah. yeah. So well, 
why don't we shift it to the question of can corporations then like these companies yes that's a great question oh, okay just oh, please do. Though, yeah um something that i think was interesting about the first debate was there was a bit of a discussion about a supreme court ruling um in brandenburg versus ohio in 1969 mm. um, and for those who haven't listened to the podcast uh that imposed some limits on free speech um and those limits extend to cases in which there is quote uh, direct in which speech is, pardon me, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. Mm. And I guess with that in mind, sort of throwing it out there, what, what do people think about that as a restriction on free speech? Does that not go far enough? Does it go too far? Um, and if we were to rewrite the, the sort of restrictions, the red line, where would we draw it? Um, because during the podcast, um, someone was saying, can you explain to me a standard that excludes Klansmen? That's the standard. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess there are two questions to that. Is that the standard we aspire to? And if mm. it is, how do we meet that standard? That's a great question. Yeah. So that like one, one very common example that they bring up is, is yelling fire in a crowded place um, when there is no fire. If there is fire, definitely yell fire. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I think that's a that's a using that as kind of the base point to kind of rewrite this standard, I think is really important because um, I think a lot of the calls to action that are done by like different white supremacist groups are they do to me, they fall under that line of imminent lawless action and you know we kind of see this play out in like cases like charlottesville for example um where someone was killed at a uh by a, a someone who was driving a car into a crowd of uh non-violent protesters yeah i will i will and for, i remember when the charlottesville thing happened i kept thinking back to when i was in nashville and you know marching alongside um you know different groups and you know, Black Lives Matter surge, different groups. And um, there was Twitter, there was a barrage on Twitter of people saying how, you know, we should be run over. I mean, it's a really common, yeah. it's been a really common call on the alt-right neo-Nazis for a very long time. Um, and so, or not very long time, but like it's been for a few years. And so I think it's this thing of when it did happen in Charlottesville, I think I do remember thinking like, it always felt like, a call to imminent lawlessness, you know, in, in, right. in, in many ways, you know, it was kind of taken up. But then I also want to say something else, but again, complicate it, if you guys will let me. Um, my first thought when I heard that was imminent lawless action. I thought, well, damn, they're, you know, wh what defines the law? And I thought about, you know, I think, so 69, I believe there still would have been sodomy laws in Texas at that time. Uh. Um, so that would mean that people could be um, jailed, basically, you know, for being openly gay. Yeah, so when is Lawrence v. Texas? Well, he, John is finding out for us. So people could be jailed for, like, seeming to prompt imminent lawless action. And I'll bet that happened, you know? I wouldn't be shocked. So, oh my gosh, it wasn't actually solved until 2003, Lawrence v. Texas. That is insanity. But when yeah. it, it started earlier, I hope, please. Um, 80, not by 1987, is me? No, 1986. Okay, I think there was like a, an earlier case that you know, then it got bumped and up and up. Um, and there's a great more perfect about that case, by the way. Um, and I think also, uh, alongside what you're saying is that 
recently driving your car into a protest was actually kind of in the works of being made legal, quote unquote, you know, like it, yeah. it would have in, in reduced, Tennessee. yeah, in Tennessee, it would have reduced charges for those people. So um, it wouldn't have made it like legal to just kill a bunch of people, yeah, but it yeah. would have made those charges a lot. And I, you know, I've just, I've witnessed that happening several times where it wasn't a full out driving into the crowd, but it was um, cars pushing up against people slowly, but still like very yeah. dangerous and yeah. Um, and we have to admit, I mean, it is free speech that's allowing the protest to happen too. So, I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just like, yeah, I think, um, granted, okay, I guess we can, should we kind of get, get ourselves back together and go back to the issue of like online free speech? Well, uh, I just want to check in with Jonathan. Is there anything else you wanted to say on that point? No, that no, I, I guess I, I was really interested in that definition because the, um, yeah. I mentioned it. Um, sorry, I screwed this up. Um, I, I, in doing some research for this podcast, I was really interested to see what the standards are like in the UK. Um, and the UK is one of the founding members of the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, mm. And Article 10 of that um, contains the sort of position on freedom of speech, which is everyone has the right to freedom of expression. And this right shall include freedom to hold opinions and to receive and impart information and ideas without interference. Um, and then the second part of that article goes on to say that, quote, the exercise of these freedoms, since it carries with it duties and responsibilities, may be subject to such formalities, conditions, restrictions, or penalties as are prescribed by law and are necessary in a democratic society. So it's clear that that free speech brings with it those mm. duties and responsibilities. Um, and in part, the wording is deliberately vague so that all the signatories, European members who signed up to the convention can interpret it as their law see fit. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to see how imminent lawless action in the US is contrasted with duties and responsibilities um, in the sort of UK European context. Um, interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. I I'm wondering, so that would have been written, we know, like, what, post-1970 at least, right? Uh, or... This is written in the aftermath of the Second World War. So oh, I'm sorry. Okay, um, 1948. All yes. right. Um, let me double check that. <laughs> I, I think that's fascinating to compare to yeah. the First Amendment. Um, I, I actually love this kind of approach of, like, obviously. <laughs> so it feels a little British to me. I'm like, <laughs> obviously, this comes with duties and responsibilities. <laughs> like, as we as we all already agree and realize um because i do I and the u.s is just like i know a lawless action well I, I and i do think i mean so uh Jono's notes kind of about you know u.s versus uk are really well researched and informed <laughs> and mine are like these like vague impressions i have honestly but um i do think my little joke is a part of some of my impression, which I think might have some actual grounding. Grounding, yeah, we'll find out. I'm open to it now. Um, which is that you know a lot of the U.S. Constitution and a lot of what was written was you know written as a document. Well, with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution later, but a lot of it was written as kind of this um, with, with a mythos of like individualism and rebellion in some ways, you know, and that definitely mm. has stayed you know within our national narrative, and it gets used by every side yeah for sure you know in, including to the point where you know 
the alt-right will call themselves rebels as a as a hark back to the confederacy and then in the u and then you know i i don't pick up on um i don't pick up on that exact same kind of like spirit necessarily or narrative like um which is not to say that like people aren't like rebellious and radical and you know <laughs> do lots of things here uh but well, I don't know quite my point with this, but I, I, I do think there's something about like in the US, things often just play out on such extremes. Um, now that being said, no, see, I'm just gonna ruin my whole point. I keep, I, I am just the, the queen of hedging things today, but <laughs> I, I, you know, if we think about the article 10 would have been after an extreme, extreme event of World War II. Absolutely, where, you know, ideologies had run wild. And, That's true. And um, the historian, oh, yeah kicking me because I said it was 48, it's 50, 1950. But I think that context is so important. And again, the historian in me wants to say, you know, the American Declaration of Independence and the Constitution is born out of a particular historical moment. And we can't separate where we are now yeah. from that. Um, and I guess as a Brit, I look on, and I'm often really perplexed by the sort of um, religious fervor with which the Constitution is held onto. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and, and that's not to say that I don't feel there's wonderful things involved in it, but when it comes to things like the right to bear arms, in the UK people are often very puzzled <laughs> by, by the, the stance taken, but that's not to say I can't understand where it comes from, um, in the sense that if you have been born out of trying to break free of what's seen as a tyrannical government, the need to defend oneself is given that much greater importance than perhaps in the UK where I don't fear for my life in the way that maybe someone from some of the states in the US do. Um, yeah, but that's a vicious circle because we fear for our life because we have people have arsenals of guns. I mean, like I... Which I, More Perfect has a really great episode about the Second Amendment. Okay, I'll oh, have wow. to, I haven't heard that one yet. Yeah, and it's like the, the, the context um, that it's it's kind of meant for to talk about militias and not for individual like gun ownership. It, it's really, really fascinating. I highly recommend it. Okay. Okay. I'll definitely listen. I mean, definitely give it a listen. Um, yeah. I think you're making really great points, John. We, we can't forget about the historical situation of it. I think mm -hmm. that is, um, I heartily agree. I don't know if I have, I don't know if I have actually, a great point to say. I will say, I mean, also, I think this Article 10 stuff is, another reason it's fascinating is because, yeah, we're talking about also, I mean, there there, there were, there was a, a, a sizable fascist contingency within the UK at that time, and the UK has also always had, and let me know where I'm wrong and right, <laughs> has always, I mean, as I know, has, has had a stronger socialist contingency yes, than what, absolutely. I mean, it's been stamped out in the US so effectively over and over again. Not, I mean, there have been many historical socialists in the U.S., but it just gets stamped out so much. And so, yeah, you would be, we would be talking about a divided country in some ways. Um, can you say more about that, actually? I'm Am think, I... So, I guess when people are discussing Britain during this time, there is a sense there's a big political consensus, actually, and that people have gravitated to a middle ground in which the state plays more of a role. Um, and so when I'm listening to these debates, I'm always acutely aware that, perhaps as a Brit, I view the state very differently because in a way I feel 
the state is a more benevolent force than perhaps Americans do. So our national religion in the UK is the, the NHS, the National Health Service. NHS provides free healthcare from cradle <laughs> to grave. Um, and that's very much seen as a product that's born out of the Second World War, that people gave their lives in a conflict. Um, and as a result of that, the state would have to step up um, and provide more support um, and provide more of a basic minimum. So I think my view on government and the threat posed by government is very different. I, I'm more of a fan of big government than I'd imagine many Americans would be. Um, but that's because I'm a product of that. I, I, I was born in an NHS hospital. Um, when I'm unwell, I go to an NHS hospital. I don't fear the, the, the financial implications of becoming unwell in the way that I know when Annie came to the UK for the first time, she described how because she was out of work for a few weeks, she didn't have any medical aid and no um, medical cover. Mm -hmm. And that horrified me, the idea that you'd be anxious <laughs> to walk outside your front door. Um, yeah. So, yeah. No, yeah, I've, I've definitely had different periods. I've been lucky, been quite lucky, especially when Obamacare extended parental coverage. I was still able to get covered by that up till like 25. So that, oh my gosh, that was great. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I yeah. express that a lot. I mean, the NHS just blows my mind. I think what's interesting is also in the U.S. there's an is an, an there's an anti-government sentiment on all political sides. Yeah, it's really complicated. I will say that I, I will say I um my life has been made so much better as a result of government uh you uh, as a result of particular U.S. government practices practices that also discriminate against other people, um particularly like more marginalized communities. But then I also, the government has also, or people have lobbied to put things into the government that have also helped me as, um, for example, I was deeply helped by affirmative action. Um, as a Latina and as a woman, I wouldn't have gotten into the University of Texas. I got into University of Texas because of affirmative action. I wasn't top 10%. And now I, you know, have a postdoc at Harvard. Oh, that sounded really braggy. Uh, but, I just, but I really more meant to say like, I, I really more meant to like, <laughs> meant to just advocate for affirmative action, which, you know, has been, you know, slaughtered recently. Like, so um, that is the government. And I was helped by local schools. I did, I did state school, you know, the whole way through. And, um, but, but the state school system in Texas is based on like real estate prices in different areas and is, is hugely discriminatory. So I went to like this really great, you know, public high school. Um, whereas someone really close to, you know, near could have gone to a public high school and had a terrible education. So, um, so anyways, yeah, that's um, a personal take on all that. Well, well one thing I want to say, What'd you say? I just realized how off topic I got. I just no, no. I I think bring well, and we're bound to talk about okay. the NHS. So. <laughs> yeah, and I am so deeply appreciative of the distinctions um, between the two countries. And I also will just say I'm I'm very much for affirmative action, but I will also bring up the point that the reason why we need affirmative action is because of governmental policies, um, which dehumanize yeah. people and redline them and all of that um yeah. drop them over as chattel and property no you're right you're right alexandra like i yeah i mean I, yeah which and it this isn't to say like that because i i'm also like a beneficiary of many governmental um laws and etc but um 
yeah, so I just like, I think kind of bringing it back to the debate of like, and, and Jonathan, I really appreciate what you were saying about like um, uh, US, the US like holding tight to these documents that were created so long ago in a totally different context um, that like maybe, I think just like thinking more about like, like I'm always looking at the kind of transformative option versus the restorative. So I think like here the restoring power would be silencing people who are openly bigoted and racist and et cetera um, on the internet. But I think the transformative thing would actually be um, addressing the institutions that give these people power in the first place, um, which is a much bigger uh, task at hand. Yeah. But um, I think that's why, to me, I think we kind of get you getting stuck in the complexities of it is because it, it goes a lot farther than just like limiting online free speech or not limiting online free speech. It's like, what is giving these people power um, mm -hmm. and what is marginalizing other communities? So. Yeah, and of course, I mean, these examples, you know, these, these, these examples are only extreme examples of what goes on all the time. I mean, these marginalized communities are getting you know, are are getting discriminated against, you know, individuals are experiencing institutional and personal forms of discrimination all the time, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, this, we're just looking at these huge, these more obvious examples of it. Um, Alexandra, I would actually love to hear if you, this is a hard task, but do you have an example of what one of those kinds of transformative solutions that would bring about more systematic change would look like? Um, I can only speak to how I've participated in building it in my community here in Nashville in like a small community sense, but um, it's, I'm a part of a couple of different or, like activist organizations. And one thing that we try and put in place when we're starting these groups is like um, non-hierarchical leadership um, and you know, obviously our government is very hierarchical. Um, we have a chain of command. Um, and although it's a rotating position, which I think is like one of the best things about um, uh, the government as it is now, or at least like the presidency. Um, but, and then the other thing is recognizing um, different people's privileges and like going into these groups and trying to correct for that in whatever way possible. So therefore like centering um, people of color, centering uh, trans people, centering non-binary people, queer people, et cetera. Um, and also like implementing different standards of like, if like, if you say something that uh, causes harm to somebody else that that person has every right to speak up and say, you know, that wasn't okay. Um, and also like recognizing how much space you take up and kind of self-regulating in that way and like accounting for that. So if you're someone that like talks a whole bunch all the time, like maybe raise your hand one last time or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Um, or not kind of bulldozing other people's opinions. And I know that these are just like small community groups um, and it's like hard to imagine how that would work on a much larger scale. But I think 
to, to me, that's one of the ideals is um, uh, smaller communities that are able to govern themselves because I think that the individuals of a group know what's best for that group. And it's hard to scale that to a much bigger size. So you're just a proper anarchist. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that is fascinating. I, and I do think those kinds of mechanisms can work on larger scales. Certainly, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Quaker organizations, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, AA and like 12 step groups 12 step groups I mean things happen really really slowly as a yeah but like there is um consent there tends to be radical uh not unanimity but like um consensus mm -hmm. when it's hard to imagine um in the gut with the government systems that we have in place yeah yeah well that was awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I know that that's very like idealistic and like, you know, thinking about like right now in these smaller communities, we don't have to think so much about like transportation, although we do, we do uh, account for accessibility in, in every location that we go to and stuff like that. But like thinking about how these communi communities would communicate with each other over, um, like wider and wider distances. Um, like you're saying, I think that it would, everything would move a lot slower. So, and it already moves so slow now without even having, you know, getting everyone's consensus on something is just a very time taking process. But. Yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, you're also, I also feel like, you know, whenever we get caught up in critiquing systems that exist, not having a vision, even mm. if that is, a somewhat utopian vision you just can't do it you know unless mm. there's some kind of that's that's where i am uh, personally with it is um that i have to always be looking to um yeah Im imagining imagining possible futures yeah you know i can't just get stuck in thinking about how how bad it is right now <laughs> So yeah, much easier to critique and so much harder to yes create. So yeah, critique. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, speaking of critique, why don't we critique some uh, some points of the second debate, which is um, should online social media sites aggressively limit online speech? So this would include corporations like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, etc. So before we start with the actual debaters' points, mm -hmm. where did you guys stand on this? Yeah, I, I guess um, for the purposes of like full disclosure, there have been occasions when I've reported content online that I found mm -hmm. deeply, deeply uncomfortable. It's been, I was reflecting on it earlier today, it's been interesting, it's been less when people have said things that I found offensive, and more when I feel people have taken video footage of particular people. So I'm thinking in particular people who are autistic and mm. are having panic attacks in shopping centers mm. and then presented in a way that, that is dehumanizing. Yeah. And, mm. um, I guess I find deeply, deeply offensive. And it's not that that person has consented to that material being shown online, although presumably the person putting it online would say they're in a public space, I can do with what I want. Um, but it's more that 
they have no real right of reply. Um, and I feel it, it, it seems sort of free speech without consequences, perhaps. Mm. Um, and I think more generally, when thinking about this whole episode, I've been thinking, is speech ever free? You know, mm. and the cost can be borne by the person speaking it, who can experience consequences, but also the person hearing what's being said. And that cost is something yeah. that both parties bear. Um, and I think that's something that perhaps we don't talk enough about, that actually speech always has a cost associated with it. And it's whether yeah. that cost is ever too great. And for whom is it too great? Mm. I, I love that. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that. really um, great. Yeah. <laughs> that's so true though. I mean, if I were, you know, if I, um, in my past, I've like, you know, been a nanny and a babysitter and worked in nurseries. And if I were talking to a three-year-old, I think if I had a really wise moment, I would think something like that, you know, of like, well, but, but it's just, it's, well, I mean to say that as like, that is a baseline truth that like, Every, all of our actions, all of our words have weight. They matter. That's you know? what you would like. That's what you would be describing to a three-year-old. Is that like? Well, if they said something and they were like, "I can say whatever I want," I think I would. Okay, three right. Long, but let's say, let's say. No, six. no, no. I just, I was just clarifying that, like, that's kind of what you're talking about is the consequences to our words. Yeah. yeah. And that we're, our words have consequences on us, mm. on other people. On no, I just think that's really very true in like a very deep way, and. Also, in the context of, I won't try to take us out of our actual topic again, but like in the context of this too, like that, yeah, it, it does. Yeah, I can't say it better. John has said it perfect. Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I guess the other thing is about where things are placed in relation to their audience. So, um, for example, in the UK recently, there's been a decision taken by lots of um, like big stores to place. Um, pornographic magazines on the very top shelf and cover them up so that you can't see the front covers. And that's come about because of public concern that, you know, children can view them, but also wider concerns about, you know, should supermarkets be presenting that material in ways that can be viewed very easily? And, and should we make it a more difficult thing to do? Um, so thinking a bit about audience as well in terms of, of free speech and, and is what happens on particular websites that are not understood to be visited by children or young people, is there a different bar, is there a different cost to the free speech that people, people have? Yeah. Yeah, this is such an interesting thing because, um, you know, one of the uh, detriments and benefits of the internet is that we have silos, you know, we have, um, you know, the, bu the buzzword silo, uh, of of being able to go into our little niches and like totally nerd like for me to totally like nerd out about like oh my god these are all these other people that like love podcasts too or whatever and <laughs> um but you know that and then i i'm just like kind of understanding like how um yes we might have all these like little niches where we like find the communities that are like-minded um but then when it kind of crosses over into very generally used platforms like facebook like twitter that are social media sites that um almost every demographic like engages on um yeah like what like do the regulations differ with that stuff um 
and who gets to decide that and like for these more niche sites which could be more radicalized um and thus like churn out you know mm -hmm. more of this like white supremacist stuff but on the other end also like maybe it turns out more radical individuals too on the left um yeah it's that's it's so tricky and i i really like ellie's point um that we should have twitter at least at the level of a jets game in terms of yeah. like what you get to say um you guys i think that to me i'm guessing is that the new york jets like <laughs> And the NFL team, I got that much. I was impressed. <laughs> I got that much, yeah. but I didn't. Yeah, that. I'm really sorry. <laughs> uh, no, 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 that's totally fine. I mean, I'm not really. A, I don't watch football at all, so I can only make some assumptions about what he's talking about. But um, the kinds of things that you would not be allowed to say at a Jets game, you probably wouldn't be able to hold up a sign that has anything explicit on it, or like you probably wouldn't have be able to. You know, you wouldn't be able to like take off your clothes or shout you know bigoted things or whatever at least like yeah um yeah for example people have been getting kicked out of fenway for saying racist speech oh really uh, so yeah it was oh gosh it was several months ago could be oh, wow. a year but yeah yeah it was a big deal i if we if sorry i don't remember the specifics at all but there was something with fenway in boston uh that, i mean but yeah that's like <laughs> it's kind of like i think what's again like so liberating about the internet is being able to um divulge more you know uh, with this anonymity but also the thing that's like so tricky with this like with hate speech is that um you don't have the same consequences like you would in a jets game you know yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I can say more definitively for this one. When this mm. started, I was definitely on the side of more regulation. I'm not, but I was on the side of more regulation. I, but I already was skeptical on the idea of like the CEOs or well, CEOs aren't going to take their time to do that. But you know, like that that it being all done by um, moderators. Moderators, thank you. Just because again, your company gets powerful enough they're going to want to maintain power you know i mean they're or which power is money hence why did facebook not report the russian account so much when we find out it was in the millions as if as if a company that smart didn't notice something like that happening that's just silliness um yeah uh so um i have an opinion on that one but yeah so i i will say though i definitely yeah i was definitely leaning more towards that and i absolutely report uh, I absolutely report, particularly at Twitter handles that, mm. um, especially because people, uh, gosh, for, for me, the ones that really get to me are the targeting ones that say to hurt someone or to mm. hurt family. Sure. Those are the ones of that course. I, yeah, Insights. that, yeah, basically yeah. that I see as inciting violence. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Alexandra, where did you stand on this before it started? Um, <laughs> So I, this is really interesting because I'm actually writing a novel on this very question of um, online censorship. Uh, it's more for video platforms. So it's, I've been thinking about this question a lot. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like fundamentally skeptical. Oh my God, skeptical? Yeah. Did I just say that right? It was one of those words that I was like, I don't, <laughs> anyway, um, I feel fundamentally skeptical of corporations or anything that really like is a 
um, a profit margin mm -hmm. function, et cetera. Um, but I think one of the things that was the most important uh, point in this debate was Ellie saying, uh, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, because Corinne McSherry is like calling or, or basically saying like, these platforms are doing it poorly. Who's to say that they're going to do it any better? Um, and he's basically like, well, we need to like step up our standards, you know? And, and he makes this point, which, you know, I don't agree with fundamentally, but I think it was a good point where he's like, there are cops that are, um, doing bad things, therefore we should get better cops. Um, I think that the police should be abolished. But, um, but I understand the point of like, um, if, if the moderators aren't doing a good job right now, like get better moderators. Um, and what, what incentive have they had to do a very good job? Right, because, no, until yeah. Recently, until this has become a huge debate, I think. Right. So yeah. If, if their users, you know, the majority of their users are putting pressure on them, then of course they would have to step their game up, yeah. you know. Where, exactly. Where's the incentive to change? Right. Yeah. Just the moment. Yeah. Which I think is happening. I mean, I would say, I would argue that there is, uh, the users are putting more pressure on change. Um, mm. But I don't know. That's what, that's, that's my perception of it. I also actually, interesting, interestingly enough, had Twitter, wasn't really using Twitter until after the election. And I felt so far away from my home. I felt so confused and lost. I um, explicitly remember saying to people, I just want to go on an echo chamber just to know yeah. I'm not alone because I just felt so deeply alone in the situation and confused. And now I am actually in the, in the process of making sure I don't get on Twitter too much, except for, <laughs> for except for to make, you know, I mean, I, I just, to, just to make sure I get on it for a little bit of time a day. Cause I actually find it very, I find myself walking away very cynical. If I'm, if I like spend more than like 15 minutes, just reading through things. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, anyways, but I, I, yeah, so Twitter, because that's the other thing is we were talking about general platforms versus specialized platforms, but I mean, ever since like the Amazon model of like, if you like this, you might like this, you know, that's what Facebook and Twitter have been doing, you mm. know, they cater it up toward to you of like, here are the kinds of things you'd like. And then of course you also, also you yourself create, you know, your, you curate your own little silo. Um, I certainly did that post-election. I absolutely mm -hmm. did that. Um, so they also make money off of specializing what, I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say with it actually, but, um, it's, it's more, I guess just to say it's, you know, it's even more complicated than like general versus specific. Right. Um, but, but, but certainly we can agree that like, it's a wider, wider range of users on say Facebook and Twitter. I think if this is just a sort of thought experiment, but I think it'd be a lot of fun. I think it would, it would definitely be interesting if for one week a year, people had to swap their Twitch profiles and they had to swap them with someone they are sort of politically diametrically opposed to and just to see what they're exposed to. Because I, mm -hmm. I'm acutely aware of, mm -hmm. of this point that Annie makes about existing in an echo chamber. And for a time that feels good. And then when you're reminded that it is an echo chamber, and not the sort of sunlit uplands mm -hmm. of what everyone else thinks, you can come down to earth with a really big bump. Um, yeah. And I feel it's, it's deeply, deeply unhealthy. And I'm, I'm aware of that myself. When I'm reading particular news media or 
um, particular Twitter profiles that I follow. Um, I'm uncomfortable with how, with how niche and narrow many of the perspectives I get are. And I'm not yet sure how I can get better at that. Does it just mean I follow more Breitbart news type Twitter handles? I don't know. Um, Annie's nodding her head a lot. No, I just <laughs> <I'm joking. laughs> That's pretty sarcasm. Um, <laughs> that's an exclusive. Um, they can't see me though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's a really, you know, my question, just because I've only been alive for the years I've been alive, I don't have a ton of reference point for what the internet or not the internet, but what um, what it was like before the internet in terms of, uh, I, I imagine that there would still be the same kind of um, range in opinion on all sorts of topics, but I mean, what is, is the role of the internet plays just further dividing us or is it just, holding up a mirror to a already divided, you know, species. <laughs> I was going to say country, but I think that it's yeah, a much broader, global thing. I've, I have heard really well researched, well, well, like read and heard pieces saying both things, mm -hmm. saying that it's both holding up a mirror and that it has vastly, it has more starkly divided us. Actually, Here's what I've heard more of is that it's mostly holding up a mirror, except for it's, it's taken away the assumption of common ground. Like that even in the, in the past, there were just as diametrically opposed, you know, opinions and there were as many people on different sides, but, but that there was, there were, because there were more shared media outlets, there was more, more shared, like a sense of fact, even, you know, of news, there was an assumption of like, yeah, but we all do have these like few common ground things. And we're, we're at a point where like even the common grounds are seemingly questioned and taken away. That's what I have like most recently been under the oppression of by people who know more than I do. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't know. I, I, and I agree. I agree with you, Jonathan. Like I do also get, it's like, I get that feeling of like having had a diet of all the same thing you know, if I really do hang out just in my echo chamber all the time. At the same time, I mean, I vehemently shook my head to Breitbart because to me, that's just, that's not even news. You know, that's non-fact-based. That's, that's, um, I find that dangerous. But, but keep, like, I think the idea of, like, keeping an ear to the ground you know, of the people. Yeah. yeah. Okay, fine. I, um, well, I also come, I also come, when, I mean, when I, well, I shouldn't maybe say this, but when I go for the holidays, I will be exposed to many different opinions and by people who I love and respect, uh, but I don't necessarily respect their opinion in news. Um, and I will also drive, uh, I will drive through many billboards that give me diametrically, very different opinions and <laughs> So I, maybe I feel a little bit like, I know there's a lot about echo chambers and stuff, but maybe just as someone who grew up in like the suburbs of Houston, Texas, I don't, and then lived in Nashville. I just don't feel that. I don't, I can feel it in terms of who I'm selecting to be around, but like every time I talk to my grandmother, that is changed. You know, every time I like interact with a lot of people who are important in my life. Um, so maybe I'm just a bit different than, you know, where like a lot of other people would be situated in this situation. I can't think of what I'm <laughs> Yeah. 
and I, I think it's a slightly cliche point, but something that I feel we risk losing, <coughs> pardon me, by existing in this echo chamber sort of culture is the ability to disagree respectfully. Um, and that's not to say that we have to sort of give up on principles we hold very dear, mm -hmm. but I feel the ability to have a conversation across principles is made so much harder when really strongly held principles are reduced to a hashtag and you're either Black Lives Matter or Antifa or um, the, the protesters at Charlottesville with the torches. And, and those, are, those are the only options. And, yeah. and actually the, the blurring of boundaries is, is just not facilitated. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I, I completely agree with that. Yeah, I think um, one thing that gets brought up uh, by Corinne is um, that if we were to regulate, or if, if corporations were to regulate speech, that it would continue to silo conversations. And, you know, it's just like, we need to talk to each other. Um, Ellie responds that this is a very happy, clappy white version of the story, which I just thought was a brilliant soundbite um, that this idea that we're going to change hearts and minds over the internet like doesn't work um, because I and I think it, it goes along with what you both are saying too is like um, even if we weren't siloed off from each other I think it's you don't have the same um, you don't have the same incentive to like show people online patience and understanding and compassion. Um, and whereas like for me, when I'm discussing something, there's definitely people I just can't talk to people, you know, who I know their minds aren't going to be changed or people who like trigger me in such a way that I know that I can't actually form coherent sentences. But um, when I have been able to talk to people who have different opinions than me, um, I have a lot more patience and understanding for them. If we're, because I do feel like we are able to meet more on a common ground because we're like sitting face to face, you know, um, and that we, it, let's say we share some common history, you know, I'm, I'm like thinking of a friend that I uh, went to school with for a very long time that has different opinions about prison than I do. Um, and although we disagreed very much on like the different stances, we were able to like have a conversation, then leave, get up and walk out of the park together, you know, and not like shut down our computer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think this idea that we're gonna be able to change hearts and minds over the internet um, and that being, um, uh, pushback against people who want to limit online speech uh, to me doesn't hold up. <laughs> I guess this is the part of the show where I really, really disagree. And I, uh -huh. I feel that if we all agree that the internet can be used as a means of radicalizing people to adopt positions that we find abhorrent, I don't understand why the internet can't be used to radicalize people out of those positions. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we took very different stances on the part of the episode where the audience member talks about how um, being exposed to different opinions on Twitter meant that he adopted a different position. I think the example he gave was um, on gay rights and mm -hmm. him saying, you know, my former life, I'd be identified as a troll and by being exposed to different views, 
I change that perspective and maybe it is a sort of happy clappy white narrative um, but I think that narrative exists and the example that he gave um, was of the Westboro Baptist Church and one of the, the women who left the church who was involved in their social media and she gives a really fascinating talk, um, TED talk, I don't know if we'll be able to um, listen to it, have, have an extract on here, but she talks a lot about how she's able to have conversations on Twitter that transformed her outlook on life um, in really positive ways. And I wouldn't go so far as to say that's the only way in which people's opinions can be changed, that, that would be a nonsense, but I really do think the internet can be a tool for good um, and that it can transform the way people view things. But it probably requires a different type of discourse where we're less keen on caps locks and perhaps <laughs> our use of exclamation marks. Um, but yeah, I wondered what you what you made of that, how how you sort of situated that in your frame of thinking. I mean, do those examples not really count or are they just too far and few between to sort of matter? I, I wondered how, yeah, you reconciled that. Yeah, no, I think that's a great example. And I yeah, I don't want to say that the internet isn't capable of good in that way. Um, I think that especially because there's so much available to so many people who often feel cut off from their social group, their, you know, their physical social group. I think the internet is like incredible for making them feel like they, or for allowing them to find community. Um, and, um, I believe that many of my influence, my opinions have been changed by listening and reading the opinions of others with different experiences than mine. Um, so I totally agree with that. Um, and I think, I think the main point, which Jonathan, I think you wrote in our show notes was, um, the tool of like shaming, um, that I think often people oh, who, oh, that was you. Yeah. Oh, is that me? Well, yeah, that's me. No, Jonathan said. Um, oh, oh, you're right. You're right. Um, yeah, whether shaming is the best means to influence people. Um, yeah, I think that like when someone displays their ignorance um, on a particular thing, uh, I'm, I'm keeping it at ignorance. I'm not really talking about hate speech, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, that shaming them. Um, isn't a way to make someone change their views. Um, I also think that it's not the job of people whose like ignorance is uh, like a, around their identity. Like, does that make sense? So like, let's say someone said something ignorant about like cultural appropriation, like the people whose culture is being appropriated, like it's not their job to counter that with like love and compassion is my opinion i think that's the that's the other job of people who maybe share similar identities with this person who's displaying ignorance to call them in um yeah and instead of like calling them out um so yeah that's a much longer answer that i meant to give but um but yeah i do think that like um if one is in the position to, and I think Ellie talks about this too. Ellie is a black man who, in my opinion, is probably speaking to a largely like white liberal crowd. Um, I don't know if you guys had different feelings about that, but he's saying, you know, like 
it shouldn't be my job to teach you guys, but I'm willing to do it in this context, you know, like I'm willing to say my piece here, but like I might not have the same kind of uh, patience and tolerance like in other contexts. So yeah. I, yeah, Does that I, answer the question or I want, so yeah, I, I, I think, and, and I think I, I think we are largely in agreement, I, I guess. Mm. I think if I've understood what you've said correctly, and if you've understood what I've said, um, I think we both agree like the internet can can radicalize in ways that we would both perceive as negative and radicalize in ways that it's positive. Mm -hmm. um, with that in mind, I, I'm not sure what role censorship or yeah. imposing or restricting free speech has to play, because mm. I something I disagreed with in the podcast um, was the, the remark, but I want Nazis to stay in silos. I, mm. you know, and yeah. and one of the the proponent of not limiting speech was saying you know we can't allow them to stay in silence they need to be uh, you know mold grows in the dark was one of the, the quotes one of the questionnaires raised and I I agree I, I don't want people whose views I vehemently disagree with to stay in silos because I feel that I feel I have enough um, confidence in what I believe in that if they come out of their silos and we can discuss and talk that I can change their opinion. And they might feel that about me as well. But until that discussion takes place, people are gonna sit in their silos until the point when they're no longer content to sit in them. And then what happens? Um, and then it's too late, I feel. So yeah, I wondered, so I, my question, I guess, to throw it back is, do you feel that people whose views you strongly disagree with should stay in silos or should be called out? Yeah, I mean, that is, I guess, um, I think that's where like my roundabout answer was trying to go is um, I can understand, I can have a certain kind of level of compassion and patience and tolerance. Um, whereas someone who um, was a different ethnicity, religion or race than me would have and I don't feel that it's, I don't, I can't speak for them as to like who should be in silos and who shouldn't, but if they are experiencing microaggressions in their everyday life and then coming online and finding a barrage of hate speech, that, that doesn't feel right to me, but, um, but for for me, who might be in a different like situation, have different privileges, uh, engaging with those people could be easier for me, or I could just have more patience and tolerance for it. Not always, because I definitely have my own very highly curated echo chamber. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess this is what feels really tricky: is that it almost feels like. Um, let's say there was a filter where you could select whether you want to have some of this stuff come into your feed, none of it, or all of it. And then like, I don't know, I know that would be kind of impossible, but like, that's kind of how I feel is like, um, I just might have a different tolerance for it than other people. Um, so. And I think you make a really, really good point when you're saying, I, I think I can be guilty of saying, look, why don't we just sit down, we can have a nice drink and we'll just talk it out like adults. Mm -hmm. And actually, I don't 
think that social media operates like that. I think it's a cumulative sort of attritional experience that mm. leads people to feel overwhelmed and um, drained. And actually, it's unreasonable, perhaps, of me to expect people to, you know, pen a really interesting, well thought out letter to all of their um, Twirls and, and and vainly you know that will change everything and, and they they can open their laptop the next day and they won't be bullied or victimized or right. um experience hate in the way that they do day after day um but i but i don't know how we we sort of i don't see how censoring people stops that because I, mm -hmm. I i suppose one of the quotes that i sort of wanted to to plug um, in this episode is a, a quote by Nelson Mandela that was was retweeted by Barack Obama um, in the the aftermath of Charlottesville and it became the most liked oh, yeah. tweet um, on really Twitter, which I thought was really really striking um, huh. and the the tweet was let me see if I can find it and no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion people must learn to hate and if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Um, and I think with that quote in mind, and it may come from a position of, of privilege, but I feel understanding why it is that people display behaviours and opinions that I consider hateful is really, really important. Because until we do that, there's very little way of changing a person's opinion. Um, and I feel we rob ourselves of the ability to understand why people have hateful positions if we shut them down and put them into silos. Um, but that's not to say that doesn't bring with it a really severe cost. Mm. And I may change my mind, but I feel at the moment that cost is worth paying or the price is worth paying. What mm. do you think, Anne? This is all really tricky. I think, you know, we're also, I think what I'm hearing both of y'all talk about is you both and let me know if I'm wrong again, like value uh, doing this kind of social and emotional labor, but there's an issue of who is responsible mm. for doing said labor. And it is incredibly exhausting. And, you know, if it's, if it's responding to something that is, if it's responding to words and a series of words that are constantly dehumanizing you personally, that's also going to have uh, there's probably almost definitely going to be some like psychological experiences of abuse and trauma, you know, and so to then kind of stand up and do that emotional labor, that's, that's a lot to ask. And I think that's pretty extreme. And then, um, but then we're also talking about this idea of, okay, well, you know, can other people who are not personally being targeted, aren't, aren't also having the kind of visceral experience of fear and adrenaline every time they read these things, can they then you know, call someone in, as you said, you know, and kind of make it, make it this work, you know, do this work. And I, I mean, I think that, um, like, yeah, I, I, I think all of this is possible. Um, to imagine kind of, and I, I personally think there's a way to have a culture of more of calling in, have a culture of, um, democratizing late democratizing social labor away from the marginalized i think i think all of this is actually really possible and i also think censorship has a has a role to play i'll be totally honest i personally do um because i was thinking earlier when you guys were talking about silos and if the nazis are all in a silo then like 
or the Klansmen, sorry, are all in a silo, then like, you know, Mulgrew is the dark, blah, blah, blah. I actually think there's a lot to be said about that. I also think that like, the, I also think that you can have some censorship and there'll still be Klansmen on, mm-hmm. Klans people mm-hmm. on Twitter, you know, <laughs> like, because not everything is, not everything is, um, you know, calling for imminent danger or, you know, saying someone should die or, 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 um, or even saying, I mean, because, because a statement like, you know, uh, you know, the, the Europe, the European races are a special people. That's actually, I mean, that wouldn't get censored because that's actually just like, you know, there's there's nothing and that kind of thing can, I don't know. That's just an example of like, um, so I guess I would suggest that there are ways to, to kind of have all of these things, but the more important stuff of creating a culture of calling in, I think requires for some really big transformative shifts, like the ones that you were kind of describing before Alexandra. And, and I also think that they would, they require a kind of ethos of culpability for words that a phrase like free speech and the way it has been used to become consequence free speech makes very difficult. Because, because in, you know, in the US it's like a joke to be like, well, it's a free country. Number one, that's just not true. Yeah. So, like, and that doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. And that just basically means someone, say, that's basically someone saying, I'm not going to take responsibility for my words. Yeah. Um, so I think we're also talking about just like way bigger uh, ethical shifts that, need, that, that we would that desperately need to happen. Um, for, yeah. For that's what? On it. What's that? Uh, what did you say? For what? Oh, well, I think I just said, like, that's my take on it. Just oh, okay. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's so, it felt so clear, like, listening to the debaters, like, feeling which side I was on. But now as we talk it out, it feels just, like, so complicated. I mean, it is, it was complicated to listen to, but I think, um, yeah, I mean, as much as I feel that, I can do some of that emotional labor, et cetera. Um, like I said, like, it's not like my Twitter feed is like full of, mm-hmm. n- you know, clans people or just like straight, like just like regular racist people, you know, yeah. like, yeah. I, and um, so I, because for me, like my social media is a way to like get informed about certain things and to also escape from reality, you know, to like go off into a little fantasy world for a minute and then come back. Um, and so I feel like for me, like the real work comes in interpersonal relationships. Um, and yeah. Um, I don't know what that says about regulating online speech, but um, that's kind of where it stands for me is that like, uh, I'm not confronted by a a bunch of like these things. I don't, I also don't have a Facebook, so I don't really know how that works right now, but um, yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, and also even interpersonal, it's very difficult. I had a really long conversation with a friend in, I mean, here in the UK about how to about what is something that can be what's something that she can say when uh her coworker says blatantly racist things um which i mean it's also i mean that's here too you know that's like it's not gone um and uh and what are ways that you know to like 
that that's really tricky. And it, I mean, it ended up being a great conversation. And we came up with like a ton of like phrases and ideas, you know, because there's this mm-hmm. thing of like, I work with you every day, but like, but you know, she was like, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming complicit mm-hmm. by, by staying silent. And, um, and like, that just felt like she was, um, oh, there's a great, some great phrase, but like, um, like a frog in boiling water. If you, yeah. Tell me, tell me <laughs> yeah. Matter. Well, yeah. And also just that she was kind of divorcing herself from a part of herself, even like that yeah. she, she was, yeah. Like, yeah. That she was kind of like in, in not saying anything, there was also even a violence being done to herself as much as these were allowing these words to happen is allowing for a violence to exist in society. Um, anyways, and so like, even for in the interpersonal where we're like, well, that's the realm where it can happen. And that's probably the realm where most of us can point to real transformative moments we've had in our lives. Um, it's also tricky and it's also mm-hmm. something that deserves a lot of careful consideration. Yeah. I think what's, what's challenging about this conversation is it can almost feel as if in order to tackle hateful speech, we need to engage in these deeply emotionally invested interpersonal discussions, which, which I agree with. I think that could be really important, but people who are hateful, whose views we really strongly disagree with, they have the luxury of being able to rely on a Twitter hashtag or um, a few blog posts. And all of a sudden they have an army of followers. And I wonder if it is that stark. I wonder if to go back to the point, you know, if, if people can become hateful online through 140 characters, how is it not possible for them to, disavow that hateful behavior as well um and maybe we need to get better at thinking about why it is that people turn to those those cultures and subgroups why is mm-hmm. it that people adopt those views um and what is that we can do to try and can change people's perspectives or, or do we say actually we've got a finite amount of emotional energy we're going to have to invest it in face-to-face conversations because it's it can feel really really overwhelming and disempowering if we think we're up against people who who can do their recruitment so much more easily. Than yeah, us. yeah. Can I say something that might be a little off topic? Yeah, can I? We can edit it out. Is that like, I mean, just kind of on this issue, I've been, for some, I have this kind of somewhat pretend, somewhat been worked on second book project someday, right? That like I have planned out and all these things. And I've been noticing it's been changing focus uh, lately in part because of RuPaul's Drag Race and my obsession with uh, drag right now. And, but also in part, I think because of what we're dealing with is that I'm realizing I'm wanting, I'm constantly wanting to talk about masculinity. Mm. Um, and I, Cause that's an example for me of like, what are causing, you know, these kinds of offshoot groups mm. and like a lot of these different radicalized groups, including, you know, like, um, and I mean, include, so Al Qaeda and not, you know, and mm. Nazi groups, you know, mostly what is targeted are like teenage men, mm. um, you know, and, and men are in this kind of idea of masculinity just is like a really big part of it. And, and just gender in general and gender is obviously a fascinating topic mm. in general, but I mean, I've never like, I, I don't know, I think, and also just the gun killings and all these things I'm finding that I'm just really fascinated with this kind of social i mean particularly with the social construct of masculinity mm-hmm. um, it's a really interesting um documentary that you may may be aware of called the red pill and it's about a an investigative journalist um who investigates men's rights groups um and sort of tries to understand their thinking um and mm. 
I think it's an interesting example of where you're mm -hmm. trying to understand that. And in the UK, we're, we're lucky to have a, a really gifted documentary maker called Louis Theroux. He, he often does a lot of stuff in the States. And so he spent time in the Westville Baptist Church. Um, his big sort of documentary break was interviewing porn stars and asking about you know, their lives. And, and he's someone who loves spending time with really cliquey, unusual groups. He had a, a documentary film about Scientology recently. Mm. Um, and it's fascinating to see the ways in which he engages with these groups um, and tries to understand them, but in a way that's, that's it, at least apart from them in some way um, as well. So, yeah. Can I also add something? Yeah. My point too is that I also think, but also in terms of it kind of gets down to like what I feel called to do, what I feel called to do. So I want, I think that work is really important. And I really, I, I do. I think, I think if we dehumanize aside, we're not gonna as much as we want to we talk about this all the time on this podcast we're <laughs> never gonna get to the kind of transformative change we really want you know like uh um but i also just want to add that i also want for my daily practice in my life though to be to support the marginalized groups that are being um like so for all the like i want to investigate into like these concepts that are kind of creating this like these angry side you know i mean particularly nazis is is you know the easiest in the US because you're like, you have all the privilege. Like what in the world, you know, could be happening where it's very different than say like a lot of like, you know, if Al Qaeda, who's the groups that are being created in Europe where part of it is like, look at how you are truly being marginalized. You know what I mean? But like say Nazis, anyways. Um, I, I do want to make sure I make that distinction. Um, but on the, at the same time, it's like, I don't want for all my attention and all of my uh, regard to be put onto those who are spewing hate speech. I also want to make sure that what I work for in my daily life is to protect those that are being further and further violated through these actions. So I just think, want to add that there. No, I think that's a really valuable point. What I would add to that is that I don't think the goals are mutually. Um, mm -hmm. And I think yeah. actually by understanding the views and perspectives and justifications of one group in turn, you'll have a better understanding yeah. of the views of others. Yeah. But no, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And, and maybe it can feel a bit more glamorous meeting people you vehemently disagree with than it can yeah. be sitting or standing side by side with people who you really desperately want to support. And I don't mm -hmm. feel you get swept away in the glamour of meeting unpleasant people. And you, are, you, don't <laughs> and you don't get an op-ed in the New York Times. Right. When you know when you do a really like in depth look at like the activists of Black Lives Matter, whereas, damn, if you don't get any op ed you want, if you do an in depth and compassionate look at you know neo Nazis today, so like, uh, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have in depth looks at neo Nazis, but like, what, you know, it's like it's like this weird thing of like sex sells and like somehow that's what is selling i sex is not the right thing to say but you know what i mean it's like this scandal sells scan it? thank yeah. you much better scandal sells all right i'm done mm -hmm. on my rant alexander <laughs> i'm i'm take, gonna stop taking up so much space now oh my gosh no i think everything you're saying is is so important um and i agree with jonathan like i don't think that those are mutually exclusive um and i think in terms of like what gets published and stuff like yeah mainstream media does tend to privilege and just in the way that these online limitations privilege like they seem to tend to privilege hate speech over and like thinking about the number of like black women on twitter who get shut down regularly and the number of white men who are saying fucked up things mm -hmm. don't you know like um so i think that that is yes a larger societal thing but i 
I think that if you are drawn to studying concepts of masculinity in these different groups, like, dude, go for it, you know, and <laughs> continue to fill yourself up in other ways. But I yeah. think that, um, it's important to, you know, because like, I have no idea how to break down these things because, you know, or like regarding like patriarchal systems, because I don't fully understand them. Um, and yeah, I think that's a huge step. So I would like to transition into our closing segment um, where we all briefly describe what we learned, what we missed, and what we feel called to do. Um, Let's start with Annie. What did you learn in this episode? Totally. I learned, actually, this is a little bit from the uh, episode before that this is a spinoff from, uh, which is that that Citizens United was about a film against Hillary. And I just found it remarkable how long she's been vilified. It was fascinating to me. So that was like what I learned. Jono, how about you? I think I was really prompted to reflect on my own sort of contradictory positions and and actually how unclear I am in my own mind about where I stand. Mm. Um, And and that's okay, but I think I've got a lot more thinking to do. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, I like that. Um, Yeah, I it's not a new concept to me, but I think in this framework, the idea of the perfect being the enemy of the good, um, I, oh man, it's really tricky because I think that reforms are often used to like further oppress (laughs) people. So, um, sometimes it does kind of feel like, yeah, well, I don't know. So, I don't know if that necessarily had anything a tie-in, but um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think in the same way that we're talking about, you can't really critique something without having a like new vision in place. Um, I think it's important, like while I'm thinking about this stuff, that I not exist in binaries um, too. So. Uh, if there's a way to kind of find the gray space or the gradient um, in, when talking about like limiting versus not limiting online speech. Um, so, yeah. Um, and let's start with you, Jonathan. What did you miss in this episode or in our discussion? I think what I'd love to have seen from the episode is a bit more discussion about international comparisons um, mm-hmm. and some thinking more widely. Um, and I think we can all be guilty of looking at our own nation or country and thinking this is representative of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't feel that's the case at all. And I'd, I'd give a very quick plug for a book uh, by a philosopher called um, Peter Singer. And he's written a book called Ethics in the Real World, which is a series of really, really short um, essays on sort of interesting um, mind puzzles, I guess. And he has a really interesting section looking about Australia's attitude towards plain packaged cigarettes and America's attitude and how they take such starkly different uh, approaches. They both go to Supreme Courts and they both get contradictory rulings. So, hmm. yeah, it's interesting. An interesting wow. So, yeah, that's um, Peter Singer and Ethics in the Real World. Cool. cool. <laughs> how do, how, oh, oh, wait, we haven't. I was like, so how about what we feel called to do? We've only done genres. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and go. Um, okay. I would have liked actually what what we ended up having more of in our discussion, which was uh, talking about the historical context of developing the U.S. First Amendment. And I'm so grateful that we ended up, that Jono brought his information about the UK, Article 10, because uh, that, or more European, but uh, that that helped us like then 
kind of look more into the history. Um, so yeah, that's mine. How about, how about you? Yeah, um, we brought this up a little bit, but I would have appreciated more of um, an explanation of the demographics of the audience. Um, it felt really difficult to listen to Elia uh, argue kind of, it seemed to me like he was arguing for all more marginalized people, you know, um, against two, I'm assuming white, debaters um and it felt like the audience was i don't know i don't know about the audience it's hard to tell with an audio recording but um just based on some of the audience's questions and statements um yeah i just that felt really difficult for me um and i would have just liked more of an explanation of the demographics why they chose that makeup etc if they had a choice in that makeup so Absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's, it's almost ten our time, so it's you know. Oh, okay, that's fair. Oh no! Oh my gosh, no! Oh man! Oh god! Um, okay, so our last question is: What do you feel called to do? Um, and I can start. Um, I originally had thought to continue to shut down platforms of hate speech. I had kind of put that generally, but. Um, I think at least for the work that I feel that I can do is to kind of physically shut down these venues of hate speech versus online because, you know, whether it's a counter protest or, um, lobbying to not have a hate group appear somewhere um i i feel that i'm more equipped to do those things than to shut it down online so yeah nice and you've taken a lot of brave action uh i really admire your social work um on that front uh yeah um i'll, I'll just i just completely took it over all right uh i uh yeah mine i already said mine it's something interesting now so um just that I do want to keep reporting um, the kinds of things I've been reporting, particularly on Twitter, because I'm not, not on Facebook really. And uh, then, yeah, being more um, creative about how I'm advocating for those who are harmed by hate speech. I mean, maybe even doing things like writing, I haven't done this ever, write a message to the person that's being targeted and just saying, hey, I just hope you know, like, Really, I'm really, yeah, I'm really supporting yeah, you. And yeah, there are people out yeah. there. And I, and I reported this. The funny thing is, I think I always thought that would be like, oh, look, aren't, can I have a cookie? You know, like I, I reported <laughs> this, but like actually, no. I mean, and that's what they say to do in those kinds of situations in person. It's just that you, mm. have, instead of turning your attention to the person who's saying like bigoted and hateful things, you actually turn your attention to the person, the victim, and try to like just kind of to basically, and, and also physically, like to create kind of a barrier. For them and to show support in a way that also de-escalates and decenters the uh hateful vitriol so mm. yeah how about you right i think those are both fantastic suggestions and i feel i'm really copping out when i say do more <laughs> research because that's my day job but i i think how <laughs> to uh read more and look into this issue more because i i think it's something that isn't going to go away and actually something i'm really sort of struck by is the need to think through how we deal with conflict and how we deal with people 
with whom we really strongly disagree. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's something that, as both Annie and Alexandra have said, it's something we can do in our daily lives. Um, and I think that's really encouraging. That's something that, that I think we can take a great deal of hope and optimism from. I love that. That's great. And Hen completely agrees with us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there I was thinking you were clapping. <laughs> I could get used to that. <laughs> just, like, just like on the show. Yeah, you know? <laughs> Another white guy getting clapped. <laughs> oh, not again. <laughs> oh. Yeah, Hen has been a uh, sleeping soundly by my side this whole time. So. <laughs>
the about podcast podcast at gmail.com we really want to hear from you about podcasts is produced by alexandra axel and annie castro special thanks to helen whose name i can't pronounce for the original music <laughs> a special thanks to me jonathan taylor for my insightful incredible but ever so modest opinions on the episode today with additional support from luna hen of the uk national archives and harry Bossett. goodbye, goodbye. Bye. Yay! Yay. i loved it